Amen. All right. Good morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts as we sing these songs of praise to you, Lord. We realize the opportunity and the privilege it is to come before you with the veil torn down from top to bottom because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for full access to you, Lord. I pray that we would not uh, diminish the privilege that it is to come before you, Lord, to have a relationship with you, Lord, to boldly come to your throne of grace in time of need, Lord. Lord, you are an ever-present help in time of need, and so we come to you now, each one of us, Lord. We need you desperately, and we admit that, Lord. We need you. We are nothing without you, Lord. So this morning, as we get into your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, reveal your truth that sets us free, and help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. So we pray for your Holy Spirit now to come upon us, Lord, and quicken our hearts and soften our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to someone, please? Okay, everybody, come on in and have a seat. Come on in. Good morning. All right. If you have your Bibles this morning, can you take them out and turn to the book of Luke, please, chapter 11. And uh, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles underneath the seats. While you're turning there, I would like to announce a few things to let you know what's going on in the church. So Monday night, tomorrow night, our women's ministry meets here at 7 p.m., Wednesday night, we are back in the book of Galatians, looking at the gospel in detail. It's really been amazing. Uh, we made it to up to chapter 3. So uh, the Apostle Paul is really digging in on the gospel. And uh, man, it has really been uh, challenging and uh, exciting to see uh, what is all involved in the gospel in a deeper level so uh, if you want to read ahead, I encourage you to go ahead and read Galatians 4 and 5. And then Saturdays, we have our men's study at 10 a.m. here at the fellowship. And then this Thursday is our church corporate prayer. That's at 7 p.m. It's here in the sanctuary. So if you want to come out and help be the engine that drives the church, we're going to pray from 7 to 8 as a body this Thursday. So then the last thing, and this is a save the date, June 9th, Sunday, is when we're going to have our church picnic and baptism at the lake. And so I wanted to get that date out as soon as possible. So if you haven't made your vacation plans or what have you, um, that's when we're going to have our church baptism and if you are a believer and you've never been baptized, then you want to start praying about that and make sure that you're taking advantage of this opportunity to get baptized. So always a great event, but that's a save the date. It's, a, it's amazing how fast June comes when I, I think, man, that's a really long time. And 
It's just amazing how fast these deeds come upon us. So that's it for announcements. Everything else you can uh, pick up in the bulletin or online at our website. And so this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Luke chapter 11. And we're going to cover the section of scripture that goes from verses 14 to 28. And we're going to be uh, looking at, which is kind of ironic, we're going to be looking at the unseen war. Yeah. So, what does that mean? Can you imagine? Be interesting. We don't have time this morning, but just kind of take a poll and ask you, what do you think it would look like if we could just for a moment pull back the veil on the spiritual realm right now so that we can check it out. So what do you think that would look like? One person, just say, what do you think that would look like? Frightening. Who said that? Frightening back there. Okay, one more, one more. Crazy. What? A battle. Awesome, you said? What, what else? Devastating. Eye-opening, yes. That's why we're going to look at the unseen <laughs> war. It's going to be eye-opening today. But, you know, our, our, our thoughts about what that may look like, it could stem from a, a lot of different places, but biblically we are given information about that, and, that, and that's good. Because there is, a, we call it an unseen war, but if you're a believer, you experience that war. And it may be seen in the realm of the physical things and the material things, but maybe we haven't really connected or uh, made the, the, the leap of understanding that maybe certain things that are going on, maybe they are in a, a spiritual, of a spiritual nature in because of the spiritual things, because the unseen world is working itself often out in the seen world. And as we look at this particular topic, we're, we're doing that because Jesus in the book of Luke, as we've been going through the book of Luke, he's now at a place in the book of Luke where he's telling his disciples, look, this is how you live in this world as a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a believer or a follower of Christ in a God-rejecting world or in a fallen world. This is what it looks like. And as he's presenting that to the disciples and to us here this morning, he begins to talk about, first and foremost, the importance of worship as we looked at that scene where Jesus went into Mary and Martha's house and Martha was working and serving, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But it wasn't just she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. That's a picture of how we are to live our life as believers in this world. We, we sit at Jesus' feet, or we put ourselves underneath his authority. We, we, we look and listen and want to know what he says and what he thinks about things so that we can adjust our life according to what God says and who he is. And then we see from there, we see this 
a little bit of then a, a transition or a movement towards uh, this teaching about prayer. So worship and then prayer was the uh, second thing that we're to pray in a certain way where we have confidence in our prayers of our relationship with God. And that confidence is that we're ultimately desiring in our prayers for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the confidence that we have that that we are these instruments of God in this world, praying his will be done and he will answer those prayers and he will work according to those prayers. And as we think about those, just those two things, worship and prayer, what those things are, are really ways that we align ourselves properly with God. And if we can get down to really the, the nuts, of bolts, nuts and bolts of everything in regards to being a human being, it all comes down to being in a right relationship with God. So first and foremost, that's being in a right relationship with God to be saved. So we don't have a relationship with God at all before we come into a saving relationship with Him. But when we do come to Him by faith, and receive Him as our Lord and Savior, we come into a relationship with Him. And as we come into that relationship with Him, the Bible tells us that we have peace with God, that we're children of God, that we have a relationship with God, that now we're in the place where God made us to be as human beings. We were created in His image to have a relationship with Him. So it's not about religion, about rules, about uh, traditional customary ways to relate to God. It's, it's simply by interacting with Him as new believers in Christ with our sins covered by the blood of Christ, which allows us to go to Christ. And so that's that relationship. That, that's the biggest step that mankind can ever make, bigger than the first step of the moon. It's the biggest step there is, is making that step of, of being right with God by asking and trusting in Him for our sins and being washed and covered by our sins. This, this creates such a dramatic difference in a believer's life, in their orientation with God. And so then it's, it's a matter of walking with God in that relationship, and how do we do that? We do that by walking in the truth. So it's about the truth. God is truth. He created a reality. Everything that we see and the way things work, it's all according to the truth. And so we walk according to the truth, and as we walk according to the truth, we're walking according to the things of God. And, and so that's why we have this next section. Because now as believers, we find... The, a challenge. We find challenges. We find challenges to walk in the truth. And those challenges are not random, but they're directed and purposeful as they come from the enemy of God. So as we think about this unseen world right now, there is a, a rage behind the scenes. And a lot of you had uh, mentioned and used words to describe uh, what it would look like behind the scenes, but there is a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle right this second going on for your mind, for your heart, 
for your attention, for your belief, for the truth, and it's raging on, and Jesus wants us to know how to navigate that and how to understand that. This unseen world, we find several scriptures in the Bible that that describe it and talk about it. One is first Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So that one scripture, it tells us, and it's very revealing. Because how might our life change or look different if we looked at this scripture and we understood that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's looking for who he can devour. So how would that change your Bible reading? How would that change your prayer life? How would it change just the simple things that God encourages us to do? Well, what if, what if you were in the jungle where there are a lot of lions there? How would you walk through that jungle knowing that there are lions prowling around looking to devour you. Would that change the way you walk around? Would you care a little bit more? Would you maybe carry a gun? If you could, would you maybe have ways to protect yourself and think about those things? But this is what God wants us to know in regards to how to live our life because there is this unseen war, there is this spiritual battle going on. And if we don't even know about it, and if we don't recognize that, then we've already lost. Because Satan knows about it. Satan's working at it. He's working at getting to your heart to change your devotion to God, to change the way you live your life, to conform you to the world. So if that's the case, then we need to know these things. And so Jesus addresses that. And so let's take a look in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, where he specifically addresses the enemy. So Luke eleven fourteen 14, it says, and he was casting out a demon. So right off the bat, you think about what's going on, and, and here you get a, a, a physical manifestation of what's going on in the spiritual world. Jesus is encountering a person that has a demon. And it uses the word cast out, and that Greek word for that, it means to eject, expel, or drive. So those are pretty intense words. Those are not just like Jesus invited him to not be in him anymore. 
This speaks more of conflict. This speaks of authority. This speaks of Jesus saying, get out of here. Out, out, you're done, get out. That's what this is speaking of. And of course, the demon did that. It says that as uh, Jesus was casting out a demon, it says it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. So he's speaking of the person that had the demon. When the demon entered into the man or the person, the person couldn't speak. And it says in the, the multitudes marveled, which you would think that that would be kind of a right reaction. This is a, just sort of a, when the, the spiritual realm becomes known in the physical realm, it, there's a reaction like this. It's, it's marveling or blown away, or this is shocking. But what makes this a little more interesting is uh, just the fact that uh, the, the Jews, they had people that tried to exercise demons out of people. But the thing was for a, a Jewish exorcist that they could only be successful if they could get the demon to say his name. And so this demon made it so the man couldn't speak. So a Jewish exorcist would try to find out the name of this demon, and if they were unable to do that, they would think that it's impossible to cast out the demon. And so that just adds a little bit more of a layer to where Jesus didn't have to go through all these uh, incantations, which is what they would do, all, all of these potions and um, chants. And when these Jewish exorcists would do this, uh, they were not typically successful, and, but they would be doing it for a long time, hours. And here Jesus comes and he just commands the demon to get out and just gets out. And so because Jesus didn't have to have the demon say his name or anything like that, Jesus and his authority is being put on display. Jesus is making a message a visual message for the people to see that, look, I am over all. I am all powerful. There's nothing more powerful than me. And so the people are marveling. Their eyes are wide open. They're talking to one another. Did you see that? What in the world was that? Wow, they're doing that kind of stuff. But it's interesting in verse 15, notice, but some of them, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So this is very interesting because one thing that's not denied is the reality of what actually happened. So even the opponents of Jesus, the skeptics of Jesus, even them, they're acknowledging that something powerful happened that came from the spiritual realm that Jesus did, and that's not denied. So here's what happens. This is very interesting of the human heart. 
we have a tendency, if our heart is set on rejecting, if our heart is not open to the truth, then what we will do is come up with some sort of explanation. We've got to come up with something to explain what happened away. So we see this in our culture. We see this all over the place. Every college campus has some uh, explanation for why God did not exist. And, and if you really just sort of step back from a lot of these arguments, they're like this really serious, uh, really silly, re- really ridiculous. The, it doesn't make sense. The, uh, the common sense thinker without any uh, scientific knowledge or the need for some intellectual aptitude, they would know that, for example, that something can't come from nothing, like a, an evolutionist would say. So you have something, well, how did it get there? Well, it came from nothing. And, and their own science defeats that argument. But you can go on and on about these things. So, so they say, oh, there's power, something radically happened. But probably there's the power that is there to do this. They say it, it came from Beelzebub, which is, uh, literally translates to Lord of the Flies, but what they're referring to is a reference back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 and 3, where it refers to the God of Baal as the God of the temple. And that's, that word is actually Beelzebul. And so what they're doing is basically mocking Jesus and saying, oh, his power comes from the Lord of the flies or just a, a fake kind of power that he's demonstrating, but, but actually what they're doing is they're attributing his power to Satan. That's pretty heavy. So they're, they're seeing this amazing thing happen. Imagine if you're the person that had a demon cast out. So you're, you're feeling pretty good about that. You're talking now. You're not being driven by this demon in you, and you're feeling pretty great about that. And then all the people, maybe some of them are his friends, and they're saying, oh, he, he did the power of Satan cast the demon out of you. And you're the guy, and you're saying, well, that, that's kind of weird because it was pretty weird and bad, evil, having the demon in me. And now the demon's not in me, and that, it feels a lot better not having the demon in me but you're saying that it was an evil thing, an evil power that got the demon out of me. So that was their argument. But then others in verse 16, so then other people, they were testing him. And it says they sought from him a sign from heaven. So you think this here is a pretty good sign, wouldn't you say? None of them are denying the sign. Would you say this is a pretty good sign? Demon-possessed mute guy, now not demon-possessed mute guy because Jesus said, get out of him. That's a pretty good sign. And they're saying, well, we want another sign. They're probably referring to, well, we want a, a, like an astrological sign or a, do a sign in the stars or something like that. But suffice it to say, what, what, what is going on is they don't want to believe. And they're looking for a way out of of the reality, the truth of what 
happened. Jesus, up to this point, just in the book of Luke, he's already, in Luke 4.35, cast out demons. He's already healed the sick, already cleansed the leper, already healed a paralytic, already raised the dead. So he's already done that up to this point and many more things. And he, he's done those publicly for everybody to see and, and they, they want more. It's not enough. And this is the problem with signs. This is the, the problem with a, a ministry. Well, I'll believe if, if I see more and more and more. And that's actually not the case. More signs just create more of a desire to want to see more signs. At some point, one has to take the leap of what? Faith. At some point, you have to actually take that step of coming over and saying, I believe. There comes a, a point where you have to actually believe, not just say, I want more, I need to study more, or maybe it's true or not, but there comes a point where in your heart you know it's true and you just have to say, I believe. But Satan has manipulated and deceived these people in, into thinking, I want something else. It's not enough. There's another answer. There's another solution. There's a, another thing going on. And so first off, we see this point. We see the enemy. We see the enemy's desire is to destroy. What's the target of the enemy? So here's the target of the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The target of the enemy is God. And because the target of the enemy is God, then he goes after God's creation. And because he goes after God's creation, what does he do? He goes after those who are made in the image of God, the children of God. And so the enemy, and we pointed out, the enemy's desire is to destroy. The enemy's desire, if you are a Christian, you have a target on your back. There's a reason Satan comes after you. There is a particular hatred towards you because you are a child of God. And his desire is to render you and I ineffective. His desire is to make us worldly. His desire is to make us lukewarm. His desire is to make us complacent. His desire is to take away the energy and the fervency that we should have for the privilege that we have to know God and walk with him. His desire is to take all of that away. He can't take our salvation but he can take away our witness. And so there's an enemy, and he's out to destroy us. So the second thing, then, Jesus tells us about this unseen war that we're seeing now. He tells us about the solution, about the overcomer. So watch this. In verse 17, it says, But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. He said to them, every kingdom is divided, or every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. So there's a general principle. 
It's a general principle that works in life that is well understood by military people, well understood by sports people, well understood about people in the church, that it's not possible to be successful when there's division among you. Here it's pointed out that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. It reminds me of our own country. Our country is called the what? United States of America. Now, if you were an enemy that wanted to take down America and you realized that you couldn't do it with military force because United States military force is stronger, then what would you do? You would try to divide the United States of America. If you can divide a country, you can conquer a country. If you can divide a family, you can conquer a family. If you can divide a church body, you can conquer a church body. And so here's how this helps. It helps us because we know part of the strategy of the enemy. So when we recognize part of the strategy of the enemy, whether it's a household, whether it's a church body, whether it's a country, whatever it is, whether it's a sports team, imagine the Super Bowl. Imagine today Brock Purdy and George Kittle are in an argument. And they say they hate each other. And George Kittle, he says, Brock, if you throw me the ball, I'm not going to catch it because I don't like you. And Purdy says, well, I'm not going to throw you the ball anymore. And then Christian McCaffrey says, well, that's great because I'll get the ball more. And then George says, well, I hate you too because you're taking my, the ball away from me. And so now, how do you think they're going to play tonight? If you're a Chiefs fan, you think, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. I hope, they, I hope they get an argument. So you think, well, how can I throw a little dissension in there? How can I do something to rock the boat? How can I, you know, kind of cause disruption? But, you know, that's kind of a funny illustration but it's just a very general principle. It's very true. Unity is so important. And to be on the same page. So in order for there to be unity, what has to happen? There has to be something to unite about. And so, like say, for example, the United States, we used to be able to unite around the fact that we are a nation under God. One nation under God. You remember that? Indivisible. So we used to think, like, that's what the flag represents. It, it represents people from all different walks of life, all different countries, all different ways of life that we can unite under this, this idea that we are united under God and that our, our rights, they come from God and not from man. We can unite around the idea of freedom. We can unite around these, these principles. And, and as long as that was happening, our country was strengthened. 
But in order to bring our country down, then you have to divide people about those principles. That freedom's not important. That our country's bad and it's evil and does evil things. And, and regardless of that whole argument, there's a lot of arguments you can make. The whole point is, if you're going to unite, you have to unite on something. As a church body, what do we unite about? As I look out, I see a lot of different ages, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different sizes, a lot of different clothing styles and all these things. But what do we unite about? We can be one body in Christ and completely be ourselves. How? Because we live for the glory of God. So you be you, you be you, you be you, I'll be me, but let's all be us for the glory of God. And because of that, we individually don't matter as much. The glory of God does. So we're willing to sacrifice our individual preferences or rights or things we want for the greater good. And that's what the Bible says, that we, wisdom from above is willing to yield. That we don't have to push our way, but what's most important is the glory of God. And so this is that general principle that Jesus is laying out to try to expose their argument of how ridiculous it is. So he says, every kingdom divided, it's brought to desolation. Every house divided falls. If verse eight, uh, 18, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? That's ridiculous. Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub or Satan. And then he says if in verse 19, and if I cast out demons... By Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So the second argument is, hey, you have your own guys that try to do this. And they, they try to do it. So what's your explanation for how they do it? And then he's basically bringing that argument to a place where it falls flat on, on its face for, for the purpose that they will know that they're grasping at straws. And the most important thing is to wake up to the reality that they see right in front of them and embrace it. Verse 20, he says, but if, I, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God. So the point in that scripture is to notice in regards to the unseen battle, who's actually doing the casting out? Who actually has the power? Who actually is the overcomer? Jesus himself very specifically says that the power is from God, the finger of God. It's a reference back to Exodus and the miracles that Moses did by the finger of God. So here's the conclusion. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that's the conclusion is that we have to come to a place where we recognize God's working, God's power, and simply say, that's God. And put our faith and trust in it. This is where the conversation is going. This is where everything's being led. It's being, being led to stop with the excuses, stop with the arguments, stop with the lame justifications, they're all foolish and simply resign to the reality that Jesus 
is God and has all authority. Now imagine rejecting that at this point. Imagine staying your ground after hearing what you believe in being dismantled as something that makes no sense at all and still not coming to the truth. What is that? What would cause someone to be so obstinate, so stubborn, so prideful, so rejecting? And the Bible tells us it's because people love darkness rather than light. They will look for any lame excuse to stay in darkness. They enjoy where they're at and the lifestyle that, that darkness brings them, and so they're going to stay there. There's a lot of pride involved in that, where one would think that they know better, and one would think that they don't need God. And so Jesus goes a little further because he wants them to really get it. So he gives them an illustration in verse 22. So he says, or verse 21, I'm sorry, he says, so when a strong man, so some of you put yourself in that category? Any strong men out here? If you are, raise your hand. Okay. Okay, you're going to wish you didn't do that here in a second. When a strong man, fully armed, any strong men that are fully armed? No, don't raise your hand. When he guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. So this is an illustration referring to Satan. So I know if you raise your hand, you maybe not known that, and we're not judging you. But he's giving this illustration so they, they understand there is, there is a strength, there's a power that Satan has. And his strength and his, his power is greater than our strength and power. So when he talks about this strong man, he's, he's fully armed. He has all of his weapons and things at his disposal. And it says he guards his own palace. That means he guards his possessions. If one is not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the possession of Satan, the Bible tells us. You're not a neutral party. You're actually, the Bible says, you're actually uh, in Satan's control. He possesses you. Maybe not like he goes inside of you. Maybe, but it's not saying that. It's saying you are his. He owns you. So that's, that's really insightful. This is coming straight from Jesus. This is a, a, the eye-opener of the reality of the spiritual nature behind things. If one is not a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan is their father. He owns them. He controls them. He dictates to them. And he will protect them so that God can't get to them or God's people can't get to them. So then it says, but when a stronger than he. So there has to be a stronger than the strong man. The strong man that's protecting God. There has to be a stronger than him. So that's none of us. So to, to overcome the enemy can never be from human efforts and human abilities because we need a stronger one. No one can fight the enemy 
on their own, they will always lose. And so the introduction of a stronger than the stronger one, when he comes upon him and overcomes him, he's explaining what happened with the demon-possessed man and takes from him all his armor. So you see, this is conflict, isn't it? This is Jesus fighting for us. This is Jesus fighting for our lives. This is Jesus overcoming the strong man who holds us. And if you think about that in the word and the phrasing that's going on here, this also suggests a battle. And it's not like God is there duking it out with Satan, trying to wrestle you from his arms, because it's not like that. God is all-powerful. If God says something, it is. So it's not a duke-it-out fight with Satan. God is stronger, and he will do what he wants to do according to what is right and true, and he will always overcome. So he's the overcomer. Jesus is the overcomer, and he takes what Satan uses, his armor. He takes it away from Satan so that he can't use those weapons against God's people. It says that Satan trusted in those weapons. I find that interesting. Why does he trust in those weapons? He's been using them for a long time to deceive people, and they work. And then it says he divides his spoils in verse 23. It says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So what he is saying, and this is all in regards to the spiritual battle. There's only two options. You're either Satan's or you're Christ's. And to know if you're Christ's, it means you are for him. You're not just neutral towards him not just mentally believing in him, but actually your life is given for him, for his purposes. Maybe a good way to look at that. You're, you're, you're for his purposes. That's what he means about scattering or gathering, that you're living for his purposes. If you're not living for his purposes, you're living for Satan's purposes. And that is a, a truth that many people do not understand. There is no neutrality. You're either one or the other. You're God's or you're Satan's. You're going to hell or you're going to heaven. You're either for him or you're against him. Sobering truth, isn't it? But do you see when you understand these things and when we pull back the veil, why it is so important that we know what the Bible says about our lives and about God and about the world and how to live our life accordingly. What we just said so far this morning, I would say the majority, majority of Christians in our country do not believe any of this, even though Jesus said it. And I believe another great majority of Christians maybe are aware of this, but don't live their life according to this reality. 
And this is why Jesus is telling his disciples, because his disciples would need to know there's a spiritual battle going forward. That their lives, that they live for Christ, it would actually cost them, for the most part, except for John, it cost them their lives in martyrdom. But see, the same is, is for us. Satan, and it's, it's so easy to, to just get complacent and neglect these things and to start t- taking steps back in our, our progression in God and just be more earthly-minded or self-minded or worldly-minded. And when we do that, Satan is just sort of like chopping down the tree, just a little chip here, a little chip there. A pastor told me one time, Satan is very patient. He's very, just wait. You remember when Jesus was tempted, he, he said he'd come back at an opportune time. That's why it's so important that we keep progressing, that we keep going in to God and forward with God and, and loving God and serving God is because it's so easy to get complacent. And complacent is a major part of Satan's toolbox, just to get people to slow down, to be more casual, that it's not that serious. It's hard to say those things if you pull back the veil here. Seems pretty serious to me. So look at verse 24 then. So we have the enemy looking to destroy. We have the overcomer. Just one overcomer. Just one that is stronger than the enemy. So look at verse 24. So it says, And when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, so Jesus just cast out a demon, right? So what happens to the demon? He tells us what happens. And he goes through dry places. So the, the demon goes around, not embodied. So what we gather is that demons prefer to be embodied or to inhabit or possess something, be inside of, of something. Like, for example, when Jesus cast the demoniac act out in the area of uh, the Sea of Galilee, they wanted to go into what? Pigs. They wanted to be in something. So the spirit that got cast out, there the spirit is looking around for an opportunity to possess someone or something. And when it doesn't, it says uh, it says it actually finds rest when it does that. So when it is not able to find a person or an animal or something to actually dwell in, it says the demon will say, "I will return to my house from which I came." So the demon is going to desire to go back to the same person that it was cast out of. And when the demon comes to this individual and he finds that this individual actually cleaned his house out, swept it, and put it in order, what is that? That is, if this demon was cast out and this individual still rejected Jesus as his Lord and Savior, but just said, you know what, now I could be a good person. Now I could do good things. Now I'm going to not drink as much. I'm not going to party as much. I'm not going to do whatever as much. I'm not going to go to the bar. I'm not going to, you know, carouse. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to receive Jesus into my heart, but now that the demon's gone, I'm going to be a better person. That is even more dangerous than before this person 
had a demon the first time. Because what happens is the demon likes an orderly life. The demon wants to come into this person who's had outward reforms, maybe gone through a program to clean himself up. And when he finds it like this, he, verse 26 says, he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits. So he tells his buddies, hey, guys, I got a better place. I was there before. I got cast out, but he, he cleaned it up, and now come join me. This is the incredible need of not just changing our life outwardly, which is very limited, but our ultimate need is to be transformed inwardly and receive the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It says that this man will be more wicked than himself, and they will enter and dwell there. And it says the last state of the man is worse than the first. So the the need in regards to pulling back the veil and seeing the spiritual warfare, the need is that we become better people. The need is we become indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's the whole answer. The whole answer is not this reformed life. It's actually regeneration. Now, the, there's a, a huge application to this. We, we see the, the application in many ways, but one way that's uh, on, on the top of my mind is, or the front of my mind is so many people think politics in and of himself, will be the agent to make a country better. And really, the problem, if you think there's a problem with our country, is not politics, it's the church. The strength of America was the church, and not just the church. It was spirit-filled, Bible-believing people who loved God supremely above all else. Now, the reason our country is going down is because the church is going down. Politics can't revive the inner person. And many people you may affiliate with politically may not affiliate with you morally. So they may have some conservative fiscal ideas and and conservative values in regards to our constitution and things like that, but it's going to break down at some point. Because the fuel for our actions is our relationship with God. And we see like this man, our relationship with God is what dictates a society. It dictates a culture. So that's primary. That's first and foremost. So what we're seeing in our country is a spiritual warfare. And we're seeing the fall of the church... And we know that statistically, and because of that, we're seeing the fall of the nation. So what's the real answer to our nation is a revival of the church. And that starts with just an individual. That starts with the person sitting in the chair that you're sitting in or standing here where I'm standing. It starts right here. And we can never diminish the power of an individual life surrendered to God. It's mind-blowing. I'll give you an example. I didn't clear it with my wife, but I'll give you an example. 
I think she'll be okay with it. So she's a professor at NCTC, right across the street. And she had a student, I won't say his name. And the student came out of kind of a drug background, got saved. And she noticed when he was in the class just how different he was. And his light was shining. There's a characteristic about him that was different. And then this person also was not afraid to share their beliefs with the whole class. And now this individual, he's, he, I don't know, he's a kid. He's probably in his 20s. I'll, I'll call that a kid. He's being sought out from the chancellor, from board, uh, board uh, people that sit on the chairs and people on the board to lead the prayers for the whole church, I mean the whole school. This one person, they, they, people like, oh, we need an invocation for the graduation ceremony. And everybody thinks, and, and my wife's getting texts and calls like, hey, what about this person? And she was actually going to recommend that person. And it's just an example that never diminishes one life live for Christ has such a dramatic effect and impact, and you might not even realize it. And this is, this is the victory. This, this is the power. This is the need. So the need in the spiritual battle is for an individual to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then we're going to finish with this one last thing. And I know it's a lot of scripture we tackled this morning, so kudos to you. But it all goes together. But this is so amazing because there, there are like volumes of books about the armor of God. And I have this one um, series on the, the, it's from like the, I think the 1600s, about the armor of God. And uh, I think there's 10 books on each part of the armor. And it's like, well, before that happens, I'm going to get taken down. I kind of need to know like what to do now before I get all the armor of God figured out. But here, Jesus gives us the whole thing. It's just so great. So watch what happens. So in verse 27, it happened as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you, it's Mary, right? And the breasts which nursed you. So they're so blown away by the things Jesus did and said that they're like, man, your mother, oh, she must be so lucky. She's so lucky to have you to bear you, to nurse you. And then here's what Jesus says. But he said, more than that, more than being the mother who had the living God live inside of her, grow, deliver, raised, more than that, blessed are those who what? Help me with this one. Hear the word of God and keep it. Wow. That's mind-blowing. Do you see the, the emphasis here? The emphasis is on the word of God. Do you know that's why we do what we do? Do you know the constant challenges, temptations to not teach the word of God? And to 
do something that entertains people more or keeps their interests more or keeps them coming in the door more or keeps them dropping their offering in the box more. The temptations are huge. And that's why so many churches that teach verse by verse are drying up. They simply can't afford to exist anymore. But Jesus says it's the hearing of the word and keeping it that is blessed and that that's the victory. So how do we have victory over Satan every single day? Well, we've already had it as believers in Jesus Christ. We've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We haven't loved our life to death. In other words, we've overcome by Jesus. But how do we walk that out daily? It's this simple. It's keeping the word. It's living according to the word. It's taking the word in and hearing it, and then it's just doing it. It's that simple. Do you realize Satan has no answer for that? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted? And he'd say, it is written. It is written. It is written. And that was it. Satan fled. He split. He couldn't handle it. How powerful is the word of God? Let me ask you that. How powerful is you doing the word of God? So we want to walk in victory. Don't let Satan tempt you away from the word of God and from not doing the word of God. In many of my discussions with people who come to me because they're falling away from the Lord or drifting away, it always always comes back to this. They're drifting from the word and they're being tempted to do their own thing and not God's thing. It's always the same. And so the answer is to do God's word, to hear it and do it. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and watch over you as you walk out that which you hear in the word. He is our victory. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this morning and this teaching On the unseen war, I pray that we would be able to see it now. I pray that we would be able to understand it a little better and adjust our lives accordingly, Lord. And Lord, as we finish up the service here this morning, I pray for anyone here who has never been free from the power and control of the enemy in their life. Anyone who is here never received you as our Lord and Savior. So we just pointed out, if that's you, you're being held captive by Satan himself. And his plan is to continue to carry his destruction out until you are in hell forever. That's what the Bible clearly says. So today can be different. Today you can be saved and receive the forgiveness from the one who's overcome the enemy, Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you here this morning, right now, right in this place, right where you're sitting, just to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I trust and believe in you. I put my faith in you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to walk with you now. And if you're sincere and mean it, you will be transformed. And if anybody else is here and just having a a time of drifting away, a a time where you just, you know, you're you're just, your passion for God is diminishing and 
You're, you're sort of going backwards and you're getting complacent. I pray that right now you take a step of faith and repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Put a right spirit in me, Lord. And help me now to hear your word and keep your word. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And let's all stand. We'll worship the Lord as we go. If anybody here this morning would like prayer, our prayer team will be up front just as we finish this last song while we're singing it. Just come on up. They'll be happy to pray for you. God bless you guys. Let's win the victory of Jesus Christ.